You're listening to The Legal Eagle on WNHH LP 103.5 FM with Marsha Chambers. Welcome to The Legal Eagle's radio show where we explore the legal issues of the day, especially in Connecticut where we originate. We look at the criminal and civil justice system, both at the state and federal level, and we talk to lawyers, judges, and folks connected to the law in various ways. Today, we welcome attorney Michael Koskoff, who leads the Koskoff, Koskoff, and Bider law firm. The firm has offices in Bridgeport and in New Haven, in fact, right around the corner from us, right? That's right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming to our show today. My pleasure. Um, you've had major experience handling all kinds of cases across the board um, over many years, and now you are involved in a project that is really kind of blows me away, I have to say. Um, I have to also say something about your father, the legendary Ted Koskoff, who defended the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. all right, uh, in a historic New Haven trial. In the 70s and 80s, Michael worked with black police and fire organizations to increase the representation of minorities. So you've had a long history of of working with and helping minority groups across the state. So now you're involved in a project. Uh, I must say, even though I have not followed every case you have ever done, it seems like no other. Um, Tell us about your latest project. Well, the, the project has been one that has been going on now for many years. Uh, I started eight years ago, nine years ago now, uh, writing a screenplay hmm. uh, about an historic trial that took place in Connecticut in Bridgeport in the year 1941. And at last, uh, it's coming to the screen this year, uh, and it will be released uh, nationally on October 13th in theaters throughout the country. Right, and will it be released here in New Haven, too? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, definitely. Okay, so we can get to go, right? Oh, I hope so. I hope you will. <laughs> I hope everyone does. Right. So now this is a case. Um, it, um, first of all, let me just ask you, say it took eight years. Were you at it all the time when you had a little break from your cases, or how did Well, that... That, that's a, that's a, it, a I'm great just question. And uh, starting eight, about nine years ago, really, there was a lawyer in Bridgeport whose name was Jack Seldes, who was a wonderful lawyer. Oh, I knew Jack. And Jack said to me you know, one day, did you know that there was an historic case that took place in Bridgeport in 1941? And I said, uh, no. <laughs> and he said, well, I've done a lot of research on it, and I think someone should write a screenplay about it. Uh, so it was his idea. He initially suggested that I show it to my children, both of whom are screenwriters huh. uh, in Los Angeles, and I did, but they were engaged in other projects, and they encouraged me, and he encouraged me to at least start writing at that point. So I started, and it, it, it answered directly, more directly to your question, there were long gaps of time when nothing right. happened. Right. Uh, I was involved in some very major trials during yeah, those eight years. That's what years. I was wondering. Yeah, because yeah. how do you fit that in in a heavy-duty case? Well, it was, <laughs> it was a lot of juggling and a lot of wonderful uh, partners in my law firm who, <laughs> who supported me during that period of time. So I'm very grateful to them, too. So tell us about this case. You say it took place in Bridgeport in the criminal court, in the superior court? Yes. Well, what happened was this. A, a man... a a woman was found wandering near the Kinsico Reservoir in December of 1941. Is that New York? 1940. And, and, yes, and, uh, and that was a December 11th, 1940. And 
it was the middle of winter. Her clothes were torn. She was bedraggled. She was, their clothes were wet. And she told a very lurid account of having been attacked multiple times by her chauffeur, who was an African-American man, uh, and that she was thrown in the reservoir to drown. Hmm. Uh, and this was at five o'clock in the morning. It was a plausible story. Uh, mm-hmm. The police arrested the man whose name was Joseph Spell, mm-hmm. and it became a a cause celeb. It was sort of like the O.J. Simpson case of its yeah. time. Uh, the the newspapers, you know. Oh, I can imagine what the Daily Mirror and the New York Daily News did with this story. The Daily News was front page headline, along right. with the war that was going on in Europe, which was <laughs> going on at the same time. But this took priority to the war often on those in those oh, headlines. Gorgeous. It had to, what the Daily News used to call if you wanted to sell newspapers back in the day. Um, it had wine, it had women, and it had wampum. So, yeah. so, so right. it had the three... W's exactly to sell a story exactly right? and what uh, actually that it what they used to say is if it had uh, sex money and royalty sex and money. this this had it all sex world okay money sex and money and royalty. royalty and this was a woman who was from a very high social class uh-huh. uh, in Greenwich living in an estate in Greenwich wow uh, and uh, it had of course the element of the claimed uh, rapes. Mm-hmm. So uh, what happened was, be, it, it, at the same time, historically, many African-Americans were coming to the North to find work, mm-hmm. uh, and people started getting fired from their jobs. Really? And so the NAACP felt they needed a lawyer to represent this man, Joseph Spell. So and this had an economic, excuse me, this had an economic reaction across many families oh. and organizations. People were getting, I mean, domestic workers in particularly were getting fired from people's homes nationally. Nationally. Mm-hmm. Nationally. There were reports as far, I mean, certainly in the Midwest and Michigan and, in, and as far west as California of people mm-hmm. getting fired because they saw, oh, a man attacked, an African-American man attacked his employer. So... Uh, attacked they, a white woman. A white woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had all of the... Uh, panache that that comes along with with such a lurid story. Uh, the NAACP initially hired a lawyer in Bridgeport mm-hmm. whose name was Sam Friedman. Sam he was Friedman. a young Jewish lawyer, right? Uh, and uh, to work with him, they sent a lawyer from New York whose name was Thurgood Marshall. Right. Who, and Marshall mm-hmm. at the time was thirty two years old. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and Friedman was thirty three years old. So these two guys are the ones who set out to defend Spell. What was it? Um, what was it like in the courtroom? That I mean, what? What? So let's just talk about segregation in the North for a second, because as we paint the picture of walking into the courthouse and into the courtroom, what did Friedman face and what did Marshall face? Well. Uh, in addition to the racial attitudes of the time, which yes. were pretty backward, uh, pretty uh, segregationist, there was also anti-Semitism that was pretty rampant at the time because mm. we're at the time when Germany is on the rise in Europe right. and Jews are being picked up off the street of Poland and other countries where they're thrown into concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a fair number of people, even in Connecticut, who 
uh, were adopting those kinds of uh, views that the mm-hmm. Germans had. Mm-hmm. had a strong feeling that the United States should not become involved in the Second World War. Right. Because that was Europe's, was ridding itself of its Jewish problem. Uh, so that, hmm. so that was what Friedman faced. Now, Marshall faced something uh, even perhaps more extreme in Bridgeport, which was uh, a place where they'd never seen a black lawyer before. Is that right? Um, it, where he uh, encountered a lot of hostility. He couldn't even stay in the hotels in Bridgeport hmm. because uh, they were segregationists. Although Sam did say to him, I know the owner of the Stratfield Hotel. I think I could get you in there. And Marshall said, no thanks. <laughs> and he stayed with a local man whose name was Tad Lancaster, huh. who was the head of the NAACP in Bridgeport. So, so, so uh, hotels were segregated, uh, so to speak. Uh, and in the courtroom, um, was he admitted to do the trial? Or how? Well, I don't want to give away too okay, much of the story okay, here. Okay, I promise not to. Okay. But it's an issue. Okay, it's an issue. <laughs> Let's put it this it's way. An issue of there was how an issue raised. About what he could do in the courtroom. Exactly, exactly. Huh. Uh, there was an issue about that. Uh, and an accommodation had to be reached. I won't go into too much details no, no, on no. it because that's about a, sort of an early okay. part of See, the... it's my legal brain going, that's all. It's yeah, my legal yeah, brain going, but yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll step my legal brain back, okay? <laughs> but in addition to that, there were people on... Uh, the, the people who came to the trial mm-hmm. were really of two types. There were those who were supporting Ms. the alleged victim, whose name was Eleanor Strubing, mm-hmm. but then there was also the black community showed out in Force. Oh, uh, interesting. And in fact, I know people who, and I've met people since, who actually had had been to the trial or whose relatives had come to the trial. Right. And because the, it was a, it was an extraordinary event. Right. And back then, so let's see if we look at the press. You had the Daily Press, who probably was there a little, right? I mean, if yes. the Daily News was covering it, there were reporters. Mm-hmm. And but you didn't have TV. We didn't have the internet. We didn't you have didn't TV. have the internet, and you may have had a little radio, but probably not much. I right. Don't, right. Right. So right. the focus was the focus was the print media. Right. Uh, they were out in force. There were pictures taken uh, every day on the courthouse. On the steps. courthouse steps, right? Uh, there was a courtroom. They wouldn't allow photography in the courtroom itself. Right. But there was a courtroom artist right. uh, who took pictures, uh, who drew pictures for the press. And some of these appeared in some of the, in the newspapers. Did you go back and look at all the newspapers or did you read uh, stuff about it? Well, a lot of them, my friend Jack Zeldis had already accumulated. Oh. He had gotten information from the newspapers. He had gotten some information from the NAACP and from the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we went back and we got more newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we found uh, headlines uh, all across, especially the uh, New York and Connecticut press was was, right. was all over. So now um, there was a prosecutor in the case, obviously. Who? What? What was that person like? Did you learn about him? Um, I'm assuming it's a him. Well, it it is a him. His name was Lauren Willis, uh-huh. um, and uh, Willis was prosecutor, I think, until. 1960. He was a longtime state's attorney in, in Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never knew him. 
Hold on one second. Uh, you can't hear me? Um, I think we're having... Okay, we'll keep talking. Just move this up a little bit. Oh, okay. okay. Is, that, is that right? Okay. 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 Uh, I, I never met Willis. Uh, hmm. <laughs> Sorry about that. Joey, <clears throat> uh, Stoke pick up again yes go ahead okay i never met lauren willis mm -hmm. but uh my father who had been in practice at the time knew him quite well hmm. and he was an extremely hard-nosed abusive, abusive kind of a person mm -hmm. uh, he at least those in the various mm -hmm. minority communities mm -hmm. which were jews italians polish <laughs> uh, irish felt that he was against them and that if you were not uh from a white uh, uh mainstream background uh you were at a disadvantage before him right right um and now in in the movie mm -hmm. uh we had to change it a little bit because uh in the movie uh we have willis was we got a wonderful actor to play the part uh, an actor named dan stevens uh -huh. who was in downton abbey and who is a, oh, yes. a great uh, actor, and he's much younger than the real Willis was. So we changed him a little bit, but aside from that... But you uh, kept him hard-nosed. Hard-nosed. Hard-nosed, okay. So what as a lawyer, looking at your whole life of lawyering, what intrigued you most about this case back in 1940? What um, stuck out? Uh, well, I, thought, I felt that this was a case that uh, was particularly... Uh, part of my life, in a way. Uh -huh. uh, I had tried the Black Panther cases with my father at the time when I was a puppy lawyer <laughs> and uh, had been involved in various civil rights cases over mm -hmm. the years. And so I felt I knew a lot of the issues mm -hmm. that would arise whenever you have a, a high-profile case that is, um, that is, shall we say, a... a contentious oh yeah that creates a public outcry mm -hmm. where that is unpopular mm -hmm. uh, i mean these two lawyers were extremely courageous in taking on an unpopular cause they received threats and the like all during the trial it was a, mm -hmm. something that you don't undertake lightly and i'd been through that myself mm -hmm. uh so i felt that that was something that mm -hmm. i really knew Mm -hmm. Another part of it that I really know is the courtroom because I've tried hundreds of cases mm -hmm. uh, in court and uh, I know the courtroom, I know cross-examination and I thought that from the point of view of the trial I could bring something that most screenwriters don't have which is a real knowledge of what goes on in court and what happens during trials. Right, so you were actually writing the scenes back and forth with your son, right? Yes. Go, doing the cross-examination or just sort of talking to your son? Well, you, well, the two of you were doing this together? This is a, this we, we wrote this together, but it, we, he didn't come on until a little bit later after I'd gotten started. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, we had a producer who was a producer who was a famous producer, a woman named Paula Wagner, who mm -hmm. was Tom Cruise's partner in, in hmm. various things and Paula loved the screenplay she loved the story but she felt we needed further development of characters and we both felt it would be a great idea to bring either my son or my daughter on board to mm -hmm. do that and it was Jacob who who said he would do it and then 
we for the next five years we worked uh, together back and forth. Uh, and he lives in Los Angeles. I live in Connecticut. I go out there a lot, but uh-huh. a lot of it was done on the phone, on the internet, doing drafts back and forth. And most of the courtroom stuff is pretty much. Uh, intact what i had in the beginning although there were a lot of changes but then there were lots of scenes and characters that we added Uh uh-huh can you tell us a little bit about that i mean who did you add well uh initially the case was uh, focused very very closely on just on the trial and it was Mm -hmm. one trial scene after another but then we realized that when a People go to the movies. They want to know more about the character. Right, the person. The person. Right. And so we brought in various scenes that are just, that I think are just wonderful that Jake uh, really was instrumental in, in bringing into the thing. And that is scenes with Thurgood and his wife, whose name was Buster. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buster uh, had, uh, Buster and Thurgood had been trying to have children mm-hmm. for years and she kept having miscarriages mm. which was a part of a kind of a tragic part of their lives mm-hmm. but also there was things about Thurgood Marshall that people don't know mm-hmm. uh, first of all the <clears throat> image of him right. people have an image of this sort of stern justice jowly and heavy set this was instead a man who was six foot three <laughs> handsome and thin mm-hmm. and uh robust, outgoing, a charismatic, brilliant, witty, and funny. Uh, all of this. He liked to stay up late at night drinking bourbon with people and partying. Right. He was part of a social scene in Harlem at the time, mm-hmm. uh, which was known as the Harlem Renaissance. His best friend, who he went to school with, went to college with, mm-hmm. was Langston Hughes, the poet. Oh, wow. oh gosh. Uh, his other friends were Joe Lewis, who lived in, in Harlem, too, and Duke Ellington. And another classmate of his in college was Cab Calloway. Wow. So this was this was Marshall's crowd. Right. And we, tro- we tried to show a little bit of that. We have a scene with him, with Langston Hughes in, in a nightclub. Oh, that's great. Uh, so that's the kind of thing. So you that, rounded out the figure. Exactly, <clears throat> exactly. And we tried to do that with, I mean, mainly it was to bring out all of this about Marshall mm-hmm. and to, and, and I would say we were encouraged to do that by the director who came on board, who's mm-hmm. an African-American director <clears throat> whose name is Reginald Hudlin. Mm-hmm. And when Reggie got involved, he said, you know, we said, we want more Marshall, more Marshall, more. So Jake and I went out <clears throat> and we wrote more Marshall and it came out. We're very happy with it. Right. Uh, so tell me what it was like to work with your son. Because sometimes father-son relationships in a situation like this, do, you know, come into conflict, or they don't, or they right. just work it out. Or, but mm-hmm. I, I find this uh, intriguing. Uh, <laughs> many people do. We did. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Was I, this your first time you had collaborated with that son? With that son, with yes. That son, My yes. other mm-hmm. son, Josh, and I mm-hmm. have been practicing law together for about twenty years. Right. And we've had we have collaborated on cases and they're always great. We have a wonderful relationship and uh-huh. he's handling the <clears> Sandy <throat> Hook case now for the families from Sandy Hook. Oh good. Maybe you'll companies. convince him to come on our program. Um, I've been trying. He might. Have you? <laughs> well, we'll ask. <laughs> I'll ask. I'll ask. But it's it, a case that's ongoing, so it's I It's ongoing and it's <clears> going to be <throat> argued in the Supreme Court this this fall, so he probably oh, right after it's right argued. after that, right? Maybe we could do it. Yes, yeah, uh, but the uh, <clears throat> but Jake and I had never worked together on a case. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I mean, <clears throat> on a 
on a matter. And so it was, it was, it was good. It was a wonderful experience, Mm -hmm. I think for both of us. And as father and son, I had worked with my father. Uh, I think that the whole idea of a father and son working together is, is if it works, it's great. Most Mm -hmm. of the time it doesn't work. Does your family have a, um, a background in theater or, I mean, well, I, it does. Uh, You're saying that, Several of them are on the West Coast. I'm picking that up, right. and I'm thinking, are they, you know, was this part of your family lore, L-O-R-E? Uh, well, we, they are. <laughs> there is a fair number of people, and my daughter went out originally to be an actor in Los Angeles, and uh-huh. she acted mm-hmm. for a number of years now, has twins, and is a screenwriter, wrote her own screenplay, which was a wonderful screenplay oh, called wonderful. Uh, Hello, I Must Be Going. And my son <clears throat> had gone out there after her, and wrote several screenplays. The most recent one before this was uh, the screen adaptation of Macbeth with Michael Fassbender. Mm. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> aside from that, we have a whole branch of the family. That's the, the Newmans. Alf, uh, Randy Newman is a cousin, oh. and a lot of the people who are in the movie music business. <clears throat> so it's all through our family. My grandfather was a singer, and my grandmother acted. I've always felt, you know, I've <clears throat> I've covered the courts for a good deal of my life, uh, particularly in New York, and I've always felt that going into a courtroom was the beginning of a play, or the middle of a play, or the end of the play, but it was, the well is the place where the drama unfolds. It, it just always struck me that way, so this sort of fits right in. It's, uh, <clears throat> uh, as, a, as a trial lawyer, if you're a mm. good trial lawyer, mm. uh, you were actor you're the producer you're the director you're the scenic designer (laughs) you're doing all of that and you have to create an atmosphere in the courtroom that makes people receptive and and it's done fast in other words it's on your feet yeah so we have not talked about the judge in this case Mm -hmm. can we hear just a tad about who this was uh the judge uh whose name was carl foster Carl Foster, okay. Was a <clears throat> former law partner of the prosecutor. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the reaction. That's exactly the reaction that Marshall has in the movie. <laughs> That's what I <laughs> yeah, did. Yeah, <laughs> he said, he said, oh no. Here we thought, you know, basically it was here I am in the North trying <clears throat> my first case in the North because he had, Thurgood Marshall at the time had been an enormously courageous people, person who went around the South trying cases all by himself, mm-hmm. would go into redneck communities all by <clears> himself uh, <throat> to try a case before judges who were members of the Ku Klux Klan. So at last he gets to try a case in the North, and what does he find? Same Ku- kind of a setup. Right. So that's what really may be new uh, or unusual, not unusual, new, to an audience in Connecticut, a movie audience in Connecticut. I don't think folks know how racist our institutions were. Right. Is that right. A- about I th- accurate? I, th- I think it's accurate. It's accurate. So, so when he walked into that courtroom in Bridgeport, he may have thought he had a better shot, but... It was... The <clears throat> deck was stacked. Uh, and it certainly... Uh, it was a case that needed to be uh, to be massaged and needed to be handled in a in a very very professional manner so uh, I can't tell you what happens there are a lot I will say this 
there are a lot of twists and turns that occur mm-hmm. in the plot. In the plot. Okay. And a lot of surprises. <laughs> so uh, it's not, it's not, it, it, one of the things mm-hmm. that our director, Reggie, said is, when people go to see this movie, I don't want them to think it's medicine. You know, sometimes you go to see a movie and you mm-hmm. think, oh, yeah. I'm going to be depressed. <clears throat> this is going to be a depressing experience. I know mm-hmm. I should see it <laughs> uh, because it's supposed to be good, <clears throat> but I really don't want to. This movie has a lot of humor in it. Uh, there's a lot of... because well, he, had, he, was a, he had a sense of humor. That's what we wanted. We wanted right? to I show mean, his character. Right. See, we're not showing... This is not a biopic. This is not a movie which is about the life of Mm -hmm. Thurgood Marshall. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that takes a snippet of time, Mm -hmm. uh, six weeks Mm -hmm. of of time, in which he's engaged in this trial, and what we attempt to show is his personality about his characteristics that made him Mm -hmm. the great uh, American that he was. Mm-hmm. And we show it all through this one trial, rather than talking about he was born in such and such a place, he grew up <clears> so and so. You know, we don't. There's not a lot of that in there. So this was a jury trial, mm-hmm. right? Could it have been a judge trial? I would imagine that would have been rejected. But <clears throat> well, was... uh, the, the <clears throat> defendant had a right to <clears throat> claim a jury trial, mm-hmm. and uh, it's that's a right that's right generally exercised by by defendants. Having done criminal work, it's it's rare that you'll say. Although not, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it does happen mm-hmm. that you'll that you'll ask for a judge, but this was a jury trial, right? Was it uh, an all white jury? It was an all white jury, as it turned out, and that's that is an issue that comes up in the course of the uh, jury selection process as well. Uh-huh. Uh, and what we try to show is little snippets of the jury selection pro- uh, process, and it's uh, actually some of the most amusing. Parts of the movie are mm. in the jury selection process, and I've gone through this thousands, hundreds and hundreds. Okay, so times, if, maybe you were a tell, if you were times. to tell our listeners now, I mean, a whole group comes in. Tell, tell us how that. Well, happens. that's not the way it happens in Connecticut. It happens that way in most states. Okay, in Connecticut, they bring a people into the courtroom one at a time, and each lawyer gets an opportunity to examine, one to ask questions one at a time in the absence of each other. The jurors don't hear the others. Okay. That's the way it happened. It <clears> happens <throat> in Connecticut. I think Connecticut is unique in that <clears throat> regard nationally. I've never heard that. Yeah. Uh, okay. And that's what happened <clears throat> there <clears throat> in, uh, in Bridgeport at the time. And so people, we, the, the idea is that people tend to be more forthcoming if they don't have a lot of other people listening. So the juror walks in, the potential juror yes. walks in and sees the judge and the lawyers and, and the, the lawyer asks, and first the, Prosecutor. The, the prosecutor will ask a question, then the defense attorney will ask a question, and then it will reverse. Then for the next one, the defense attorney asks first, and then the prosecutor asks. Uh, and they're, what they're trying to do is to size up the person to see whether they would be a fair juror and mm-hmm. one that w- they feel would be more favorable to their cause, or more importantly, mm-hmm. they're, what we try to do when we is, is we, we call it a deselection process. We don't really select a jury. <laughs> what you try to do is eliminate people who you feel are going to be biased against your case before the case even starts. Right. And we show a couple of these people in our jury selection. In your jury selection. It's very amusing. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's <laughs> yeah. good. And um, is it all male? This uh, jury? No, no. It, 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 it was a mixed male and female jury, which uh-huh. was which did happen at the time in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. were 
mm-hmm. such a thing. In some states, they didn't have women. And mm-hmm. in, even in Connecticut, it was fairly recent in time. Mm-hmm. This was in 1941 that mm-hmm. uh, they allowed women on rape cases. They thought it wasn't appropriate oh. for a woman to sit on a rape case. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did uh, the defendant face by way of potential jail? Well, it 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 could have been uh, life imprisonment. Okay. Um, in fact, if he had been indicted under the Lindbergh Act, which was in effect at the time, it could have been death. Uh, but uh, as it turned out, the, the it stayed in Connecticut courts, and he was, and it could have been life imprisonment. It could have been life imprisonment. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I'm not going to ask the next question. Because if I do, I don't think you're going to answer what happened. I'm not. So, uh, so <laughs> I know so what the question's going to be. It's what that. happened with the case. <laughs> what happened? What, how did the jury decide? So I'm going to suggest to our listeners that they have to see the movie. Is that the right reaction on my part? Absolutely. You nailed it. <laughs> the, uh, the, they should see it also uh, because they will enjoy it. I yes. mean, that, yes. uh, they, will, they will enjoy it. And they will be, hopefully, what we tried to do, at least, and I think based on the, the screenings we've had so far and the audiences mm-hmm. that have seen it, people will be inspired by it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. feel that sometimes when everything looks really dark around mm-hmm. us in society, uh, that there are rays of light uh, and there are paths to, uh, to justice. Right. Um on a, just a slightly different question. On the, so the two attorneys who are, uh, are Marshall and Friedman. Friedman, how does their relationship change during the course? I'm just curious because they're sitting well, next to each other. and Well, it, as you'll see, they're, they're not exactly on all fours with each other. They're not, they don't see the case the same way. They don't see their like. roles the same way. Oh, really? And it starts off. As, as it starts off, and you'll see that there's a lot of conflict between them. Hmm. Uh, and I think part of it, again, is the conflict that <clears> they have that creates an interest in the movie because you're seeing, you're, what you're seeing is an African-American who's facing uh, all kinds of racial prejudice and a Jew who is concerned about not only what's happening here but what's going on in Europe. Ah. So there's the question that arises why are you taking this case with all that's going on in the world? Why would all of these resources and would you give your resources toward defending uh, a black man who is facing prejudice because your people are facing this uh, eventual annihilation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so that's, that's all in the background. You asked me earlier what I, one of the things that interested me about the case mm-hmm. and one of the thing was the case itself, and the other thing was the times. The times, yes. Because you have a feeling that you know what's going on in Europe, you know what's going to go on in Europe, which is right, this is it before the Holocaust. Right, it's before the Holocaust, so it's sort of bubbling up, but it's not certain, right? Right, right. Yeah. And we know, we the audience who know our history, know what's going to happen. Right. But the characters who were there then don't. They, they fear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't know it, except for the fact that people are being picked up off the streets even mm-hmm. then in 1941. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, so there's this underlying... There's an underlying cloud, cloud that's hanging over cloud, it. And, and it affects both attorneys. Yeah. 
Um, and it affects their self-interests, you know, too, because of obviously the Friedman and his wife, we show also, mm-hmm. we show Sam at home, Sam mm-hmm. Friedman at home with his wife, Stella, mm-hmm. and you even show them in the synagogue. Mm. Uh, and uh, hmm, so that's interesting. That we're seeing, we're seeing both of these people uh, through separate, uh, separate lenses. Mm-hmm. Sense. Mm-hmm. And Sam is, uh, uh, by the way, the actors who do this are, are very interesting actors. Uh, Chadwick Boseman plays uh, Thurgood Marshall. He's he he also played Jackie Robinson oh, in Forty Two, and he played James Brown in the James Brown biopic. And so he's he's sort of known for playing iconic uh, yes. black historical figures. Um, but Sam is played by Josh Gad. Mm-hmm. Now, Josh Gad was in the Book of Mormon. He was the lead in the Book of Mormon, ah. and he is known, and he's been in a million movies now as as voices, particularly. But he, he was he's Olaf in Frozen, and and he is a, known as a comic actor. Right, right. So the juxtaposition of this uh, uh, Chadwick Boseman and Josh Gad is, is good, and then the third person who's of real note there is Sterling K. Brown, mm-hmm. who uh, was, uh, who's in a hit TV show now called This Is Us, and played in another courtroom drama. He mm-hmm. played Chris Darden wow. in the O.J. case. Okay, so you have a fabulous cast of... Yeah. And uh, rounded out with uh, Kate Hudson. Right, uh, and they all agreed to do this film because there was something about it that yeah. that sort of caught them. Well, they all felt it was an important film, mm-hmm. and they didn't do it for the money, unlike, and they could. I mean, these people mm. could command huge yeah. amounts of money, and it, there just wasn't that amount of money available in this kind of a case, because right. it was an independent film. Right. Uh, but they did it because they believed in it, they thought it was an important film to do, and they they wanted to be a part of it. Right. So how did Thurgood Marshall's family members react to his portrayal in the movie? Did you get any feedback? Yes. Uh, we actually, that was the, maybe the most tense I have ever been. Really? Was when we gave the screening for the Marshall family. Oh, goodness. Could you set the scene for us, please? Yeah. We went to Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. And at this a screening room, it was a small screening room, and there were about 20 people there who were, who were included uh, Thurgood Marshall's son John, mm-hmm. who and his other son Thurgood Jr., who's known as Goody, and both of their wives and John's kid, uh, his child, who's a young woman, fifteen, and some other family members, relatives, and everything. Uh-huh. And Thurgood Marshall's wife was there. His second wife. Now, his second wife. Okay. His first wife, uh, who is the one who's in the movie, died in her forties as a young woman of, of lung cancer. Uh, and uh, Thurgood remarried another woman named Sissy. Mm-hmm. And Sissy, as Thurgood was six foot three inches tall, Sissy is about four foot ten. <laughs> you know, you know. So, and she's as sharp as a tack, and she's about 89 or 90 now. Uh, wow. And so we were really worried, and I went over to Sissy afterwards, and I said, Sissy, how did... How did you like the movie? She said, well, I liked it a lot. She said, I only have one major complaint. Hmm. And I said, what's that? She said, well, that 
man who played Thurgood, she said he wasn't nearly as handsome as the real Thurgood. <laughs> <laughs> and then she laughed. And they loved it. They loved it. In fact, they, they the rest of the family has just loved it, and they want to be a part of it now. And they're so huh. John Marshall has been going to some of the screenings. I think I'm sure the Marshalls, good many of them, will be at the premiere. Wow, that's wonderful. And where is the premiere? Um, there's at least one in New York on mm-hmm. the 13th of October. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, on the 23rd of September. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, okay. The release date is the, the 13th, 13th of October, right. but on the 23rd of September, there's going to be one, and there may be another one in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, but the thing that was most, that when I say that about the screening, that was that, that was most important to me and mm-hmm. to the Marshall family. And you just sort of sat there with your family? Yeah, just, just my uh, wife and I sat there. Just sat there, there just waiting. Shaking and just seeing how just, are they going to like this? Just, yeah, yeah, because if they it's didn't tricky. like it, because yeah, what do you do? Especially <clears> since <throat> uh, what we wanted <clears throat> to do <clears throat> in the screenplay was to capture the character of the man, <clears throat> and you know it's easy to do a screenplay where you're just talking about historical events, right? But when you're trying to capture a person's character, it becomes a more nuanced uh, undertaking, and they felt we nailed it. Right. And, and it also it comes through an actor, right? Who's not, who is not the person? It. Yeah, so exactly. Because when she says he's not as handsome, etc., but that's what she's really talking about. Right. It is not right. quite Thurgood, right? It is. That's right. Right. Yep. So there's something that goes on mentally, where you have to make that yeah, leap. The transition. If you're the family member, mm-hmm. that's right. So that's kind of that's kind of interesting. Um, so what was the highlight of the process for you? Was it learning that the screenplay would be produced? Was it, me, was it seeing the first moments of it? Uh, what, what's it like for a lawyer who's done all kinds of things? Um, um, I think it was working with my son. Was it working with <laughs> yeah, his son? Okay, good. So, but that's after that, um, uh, it's been a series of, of highlights, but I think... The some of the serendipitous things that occurred mm-hmm. uh, were were beyond spectacular. Uh, Tell us about that. Well, I um, I had been after I wrote the screenplay initially before my son became involved, and I was showing it to everyone I knew because I figured no one's ever going to, you know, what the odds of getting a, <laughs> a movie made are are you might as well win the lottery, right? Um, and next, a friend. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I showed it to a friend who's a lawyer, another lawyer named uh, Alan Nair. Mm-hmm. And Alan is an entertainment lawyer in Connecticut. And mm-hmm. I said to Alan, I've written this screenplay. And he said, oh, I know all about that case. My father was a reporter who covered the trial. No. Yeah. So he then brought out lots of articles that father had written. He said, I learned about that case growing up. And I had shared office. Alan said, I shared office space with Sam Friedman when I first came out of law school. So then... About, I'd oh say, goodness. six months. So I sent him the script. He really liked it. And then uh, about six months later, he he said to me, uh, by the way, he said, I've been talking to the Friedman family. They're all interested in seeing the screenplay. I said, sure, throw it to anybody you want. So he showed it to one, and it, Sam's daughter, Lauren. Mm-hmm. And I had never met her. Mm-hmm. And he said, Lauren would like to have lunch with you. So I said, okay. She read the screenplay, and at lunch she said, by the way, I really liked the screenplay a lot. And would you mind if I showed it to a producer? 
Lauren says. Lauren said, I said, show it to anyone you want, because everyone in Los Angeles is a producer. She said, I have a friend who's a producer. Sure, sure. So I showed it to her, <laughs> to her, and then a few weeks later, I got a call from the producer who said, I really want to make the movie. And that was, I think, probably the most startling moment. And she gave me her name, and I didn't know who she was. And so I called my son. I said, I've got a producer. He said, really? Who is it? And I said, and he said, pause. How did you get to meet Paula Wagner? <laughs> and she, then I learned that she was a major, major force in Hollywood. Wow. And so that was pretty, that was an amazing moment. That was an aha moment. That was an aha moment. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, Rule number one for reporters is don't presume. So shall I presume that this that that this film was filmed here in Connecticut? Yeah, you you would could I presume, presume that, I, but you would be presuming wrong, incorrectly. Wrong. Incorrectly, okay. And it should uh, have been, uh -huh. by your rights, or at least we I, I, we would have liked it initially to have been filmed. Because I can imagine going being in Bridgeport, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, and the what courthouse the hell? is still there. The courthouse is still there. It's Golden Hill Street Courthouse, and uh -huh. uh, uh, but. Uh, and we tried to get it made in Connecticut and went to the Connecticut Film Commission. Uh -huh. uh, and they wanted to make it in Connecticut, but they were unable to provide any uh, inducements oh. because of constraints, because of uh, financial constraints. At the same time... What a shame. It was a shame. What At a the shame. same time, though, the state of New York was anxious to have the film. Oh, okay. And uh, particularly the city of Buffalo... And Buffalo, it, it turned out, was a was a gem of a city, perfect for for the filming. They had they a, have a courthouse. courthouse. They have a courthouse. They gave us the courthouse. It was a, not being used. It was an old federal courthouse with beautiful courtrooms. They had uh, they there were some scenes in a railroad station. They have a railroad station that was designed by the same person who designed Grand Central Station. They had nightclub scenes. It was just. Spectacular, and the people of Buffalo were as welcoming as as people can possibly be. So it turned out to be a wonderful. That's experience. a serendipitous moment as well. Yes. I would think yeah. because that to have the whole courthouse to yourself is just. It was. I mean, it was. Did you go up there? Oh yeah, we were there for the entire shoot. My wife and I went up. Oh, that's wonderful. So, um, one little technical one one little question before we we have about three or four minutes before we end our interview today, but. Do you have? Can you talk at all about the legal strategy that emerged in the case? That, or, or is that too complex right now? To, I think it's too complex okay. to go into. I think okay. it is. Okay, because yeah. you know, given the inherent bias, you know, I'm just mm -hmm. curious. But I guess I have to see. But the I film. will tell you something about this that I've learned as a trial lawyer over mm -hmm. many years is this: that some people try to go into court and to try to convince people of something that mm -hmm. is true. Mm -hmm. I mean, people think, well, that's the job of a lawyer to go mm -hmm. out and try to hemp, can tell people something mm -hmm. and that they're going to change their mind. You don't change people's minds. Mm -hmm. What you try to do as a lawyer to be successful is to try to take what people already believe and harness it ah. for your client's good. So there are certain fundamental things that people believe and you try to tap into that with the jury. So for, you know, one thing that people are going to 
there's going to be racism. So you're going to have to deal with the racism, Mm -hmm. not by trying to Mm -hmm. tell people don't be racist. Mm -hmm. If they are racist, they're racist. Uh, Right. So you have to, you have to, you have to acknowledge that that and Mm -hmm. try to use that. Or you have the, the contrary for the feelings about Mrs. Strubing, that this is a, a socialite. She's a respectable woman. And so, and these lawyers were very sharp. Yeah, her lawyers. motives would be very interesting to discuss in another. After it comes very, out, will you come back after the movie comes sure, out yeah. so that we could talk about the other things that we yeah. can't talk about now? There's a lot. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that's in, that I would like to know about. So I have to ask one more question. Uh, now that you have done your first mm-hmm. about to be produced screenplay, mm-hmm. is there perhaps another movie on tap? Are uh, you are you mulling on yes, something? Yes, we're mulling on quite a few. Th- Things and one of them, we've actually been approached by some oh, approached uh, by some producers who said who asked if we would rewrite a screenplay that somebody had on another great story, and so we're looking at that too. You're looking at that too. So your law life is slowly becoming enmeshed in your movie <laughs> right, life, right? right? Right. And it's a lot of fun, I can it's tell. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot it's of great. fun. Okay, it's on great. that note, it looks like our time is up. It goes fast when the topics are so interesting. We will definitely have you back after the movie comes out, you promise? Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, and because I'm really curious to know how your foray into the cinematic world uh, evolves. I am too. <laughs> you are too, right? So we want to thank you very much for coming to our studio today to tell us what might what might, might turn out to be your biggest case of all. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Our folks can go to the New Haven Independent Org website to get a podcast of this broadcast and to listen to the wide variety of shows that the station produces every day. Thank you again, Mike.